Hi everybody, uh, I'm Ashwin. And I'm Raj. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. This is a podcast exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies, where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Today, we are excited to talk about the management of newly diagnosed AML. We have an expert, Dr. Eitan Stein, who is the Chief of Leukemia Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, New York. He's also the Director of the Program for Drug Development in Leukemia and Division of Hematologic Malignancies at Sloan Kettering. Dr. Stein, thank you so much for joining us. Before we start, uh, can you tell us about yourself and your clinical and research focus? Sure. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me on this wonderful podcast. So as you uh, mentioned, I'm the chief of the leukemia service and I direct the program for drug development in leukemia. My clinical focus is really on um, patients with myeloid malignancies, spanning the spectrum from uh, myelodysplastic syndrome to myeloproliferative neoplasms to acute myeloid leukemia. And of course, we now have patients who have clonal hematopoiesis and CCUS, which are sort of precursor states that can lead to the development of myeloid malignancies. And my research focus uh, since I've actually during fellowship and since I finished fellowship has been really um, small molecule inhibitors against uh, various mutated and aberrantly expressed genetic and epigenetic targets in patients with acute myeloid leukemia. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Stein, for joining us. Um, so let us jump right in. We'll start with the case, and you can walk us through how would you approach this patient, and we can discuss the data as we go. Case, um, it's slightly modified the case I saw in the clinic. We can talk about uh, the diagnosis first and then uh, the management. So this patient, a 55-year-old man uh, with no significant past medical history, presented with fatigue, easy bruising, and Disney on exertion. Complete bed count at presentation um, showed a white count of 128,000 and with a hemoglobin of 7.3 and a platelets of 20. Um, with a differential showing 80% blast in the, uh, in the peripheral blood. He appropriately underwent a bone marrow aspiration and biopsy, which showed 60% monoblast. And the flow cytometry was positive for CD14, CD33, CD34, as well as CD64 and HLA-DR. So in a case like this, you know, how do you approach um, a case? This is a new diagnosis of acute myelomonocytic leukemia uh, with monocytic differentiation. Can you walk us through your thought process and the diagnostic test you will order? Sure. So I'm sorry. And the white blood count was 128 at presentation. That is correct. Okay. Thanks. So I think there are two two salient features of this case. So of course you want to get a diagnosis and you want to get all the information you need to make a to make a treatment decision. But with a white blood count of 128, where it's 80 percent less, you know we worry or I worry a fair amount about leukostasis. And I think the important point to remember is that despite the fact that this patient doesn't appear right now to have any signs or symptoms of leukostasis, once your white blood count or certainly your absolute blast count gets you know, towards 100, patients can deteriorate extremely rapidly. So if you have a hint that this is, I mean, it sounds like we all know that this is now a myelomonocytic leukemia, you wanna do everything possible to get that white blood count down quickly. 
So for a patient like this, I would initiate them on hydroxyurea, but I would actually get them leukophoresed sort of ASAP. And I think that's a very important point because you really, really want to get that white count down as quickly as you possibly can. Now, in terms of diagnostic tests, as you said, you're going to do a bone marrow biopsy that's going to sort of, un, you know, which I think was already done, that's going to uh, delineate whether this is a myeloid or a lymphoid malignancy. We already know it's a myeloid uh, malignancy. But the important thing when it comes to treatment is you really need to know what the cyto and molecular genetics are of this patient. There are not that many types of acute myeloid leukemia that lead to a white blood count of 128. Those patients typically will have mutations either in FLT3, typically in internal tandem duplication. You can also see white counts that high in patients with RAS pathway mutations, um, but FLT3 would be more common. So you want to be sure, number one, that you send cytogenetics, number two, that you send a full next-generation sequencing panel, and ideally you want to have the results of the mutations that are actionable back within, you know, actually, I would just say as soon as possible, however quickly that might be at your institution. Um, just for our listeners, how does the uh, having the chromosomal changes, either by fish or karyotype, and as you also alluded, um, the molecular mutations are based on NGS, how does that help in management of this patient? I know, yeah, so I know you, I'm jumping ahead about yeah, No, 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 not a problem. So so I think, you know, you need to think historically about what we used to do for AML when when Ashwin and I were, uh, were when I was a fellow and Ashwin was um, was almost student. a resident running around Dr. Marty Tallman's clinic at Memorial Sloan Kettering. You know, the way we treated these patients, especially someone who's 55 years old, is they all got intensive induction with 7 plus 3. Um, but we now have therapies that target specific molecular genetic alterations. So if this patient had a FLT3 mutation, um, the standard of care would be to give that patient a FLT3 inhibitor, in our case, Midastorin, in combination with 7 plus 3, based on results of a randomized phase 3 trial called the RATIFY trial, showing a small improvement in overall survival. If the patient, I don't think that's going to be the case in this particular patient we're discussing, but if the patient were to have a complex karyotype, and let's say a p53 mutation, we sometimes think now about maybe not doing seven plus three in those patients because they their outcome with seven well their outcome with everything is bad, but their outcome with seven plus three is bad, and then you also give them infections and all sorts of other problems that they might not need to get. And then the the other important point would be if the patient were to have. Um, a secondary AML, so an, a an AML arising from a prior myelodysplastic syndrome or therapy-related acute myeloid leukemia, um, you would think about giving them the liposomal formulation of 7 plus 3, which has shown uh, benefit in that particular patient population. So the overall point, instead of getting the nitty-gritty, is that it's not just a one-size-fits-all approach anymore. You, you actually have to think about this a little bit, which, of course, has made um, our lives a little bit harder because before you could only kind of do one thing. And and hope for the best, but now it's better for patients, um, but it requires a little more thought than than what what was done, you know, eleven or twelve years ago. Um, I had a quick question regarding getting the chromosomal change of the molecular mutations. Do you typically wait for those before you start the definitive induction regimen, as long as you are able to get the white count down by other means? There was, I remember, a recent observational study from Germany which showed that waiting a little bit doesn't really 
you know, decrease outcomes. But, you know, that was an observational study. It could come with a lot of biases. So I always, you know, had struggled with how to interpret that data. Like, what do you do? You, do you typically wait in your practice or uh, would you start? So I wait in patients where I think they're relatively stable in the sense that they don't have super proliferative disease and the right blood count isn't galloping, you know, and doubling or tripling every few days. In those patients who may, might just have cytopenias, I think, um, you know, waiting and transfusing them while you're waiting, I think is fine. And I think that um, there have been a number of studies, I think, like you said, observational studies that sort of support that conclusion. And a patient like the one we're discussing, though, that makes me nervous. You know, this is a patient who's got a very, very high white, white count. You know, they've got monocytic leukemia. So who knows if they've got extramedullary disease somewhere? Um, who knows if with that white high white count, it's seeding their central nervous system. So the good thing about, so I'm, I'm going to assume for a second this patient has a FLIP3 mutation. You know, the good thing about the ratified trial is that the mitostorin, the FLIP3 inhibitor doesn't start till day eight. So you can start your chemo, you know, you can get the white count down a little bit with leukophoresis. You can, um, you know, that'll buy you a day or two. And then you can start your chemotherapy, your seven plus three, um, and but as long as you have the FLT3 results and the mitostorin in hand by day eight, um, you haven't you haven't done anything wrong. So I I think that those observational studies are prop. The way I interpret them is that if you've got some stable patient, it's great. But if you've got a patient, you know, with really high white counts, that then I would I I would be nervous about it. So it sort of gets back to this point that I made a second ago is that really one size doesn't fit all. It would be great if you know. I always, I'm jealous of my solid tumor colleagues, not that I remember anything about solid tumors, but it just seems like things seem a little bit more regimented. You know, you want to give art chop, right? It's once every three weeks, you know, you kind of know what you're doing, but, but for this, you know, there's some patients with AML, you can wait, some patients you can't wait, and it really takes a little bit of expertise and, um, and, uh, and thought before you just say, well, it's a, a sort of having a cookie cutter approach. One other thing, um, and this is something I've seen um, at different institutions, different practices, um, and, and some of the prior institutions have been, um, uh, what is the point of checking all the myeloid NGS panel at the time of disease presentation? Because we do not have any targeted agents targeting all these mutations. We have only um, in a couple of mutations where we can act upon, like like you said, FIT3, um, and NPM1, with, which we use in our prognostication tools. But rest of the mutations, we don't know what to do with them, how to prognosticate them. Um, so I think the approach is, how, how do we do that? Like, you know, why do we need to test them for, to begin with? Um, so I think it's becoming more important because, you know, for example, the new ELN criteria, to 2022 criteria for the um, stratification of AML into favorable intermediate and unfavorable risk disease actually includes more mutations than just NPM1 and IDH and the things that are therapeutically actionable. So they include mutations like RUNX1 and ASXL1, and now the splicing factor mutations, we can argue about whether those patients are really unfavorable risk. But so, so I do think for prognostic purposes, many of these mutations are important. Now you could say, well, you know, just do the ones that are on the ELN list, but I don't know, you know, there are new things that are that are that are being discovered all the time. Even if they're not on the ELN list, you can look at retrospective studies that can sometimes give you a hint how these patients are going to do. And for me personally, 
I'm kind of interested and I'm very interested in knowing how um, mutational profile changes over time. I guess the other the other thing that's important is that, you know, I think for many years we thought about MRD testing in this in the by using um, immunophenotyping by flow cytometry. But I think there is a move now to use highly sensitive next generation sequencing panels as a method of detecting MRD. And if you're going to do that, you really need to know all of the mutations at the time of diagnosis um, if you're going to look for MRD. Uh, you know, at some later time point. So I, I would advocate that you should just do the whole shebang up front. And if the insurance, I mean, it's a different sort of insurance not paying for it, but if insurance is paying for it, you know, all of our insurance rates will go up a little bit and that's fine, you know, because it's important for our patients. Yeah, sounds good. So now some practical questions, you know, uh, regarding uh, some of which you have already alluded to, like doing leukapheresis. So, uh, so first of all, you know, whom do you consider fit for intensive induction chemotherapy, like seven plus three? Like, do you have an age cutoff, uh, or do you guys use any like geriatric assessment or frailty assessment, or how do you make that decision? Yeah, you know, the best answer I heard to this was something I read, or maybe I heard it from Dr. Hagop Kantarjan, who you know is the longtime chairman of the leukemia department at MD Anderson. And he says he uses the oculometric assessment, which is a way of saying he looks at the patient and decides whether they're well enough to receive intensive chemotherapy. I do think it's important to note now that, you know, and I think the NCCN maybe should change the way they've got their guidelines and in, in the uh, that are printed, which is that we used to think about, you know, this age cutoff of less than 60 or older than 60. But, but like everything else with AML, it's much more complicated now because it's not just the um, relative um, fitness of the patient to tolerate intensive chemotherapy. It's also whether that patient is going to respond to the intensive chemotherapy. You know, when we didn't have anything besides intensive chemotherapy, it didn't really make a difference, right? Because you wanted to give intensive chemo to as many patients as possible and as old as they could possibly be because it was the only thing that really worked. But now that we have agents like hypomethylating agents and venetoclax, it may be that even a relatively fit patient who has very, very bad genetics, they might benefit from a non-intensive approach. And I think that's an, a really important point that um, it's not just the ability of the patient to tolerate intensive induction. It's also the biological fitness of the disease to respond to that intensive induction. So I, so in a patient where, so let's say I had a patient who um, has a disease that I think is very responsive to induction, like a core binding factor leukemia. So in that patient, I push it. So even if they're 75 years old, I might give them intensive induction because I think I can cure them with that induction. And, and and I base my assessment on the minute I walk into the room whether they can get up on the table or not, basically, um, which is a crude a crude way of doing it, and maybe not the right way of doing it, but it's the most efficient way of doing things. Sounds good. Um, also, you know, you you um, alluded to that in this patient, although this patient is asymptomatic currently, but you are worried about leukostasis and you would, you know, rather start leukophoresis sooner rather than later. Uh, now, do you have a preference whether, you know, you would start leukophoresis versus start hydria first to start them together? But I've seen different practices at different institutions. What is your practice typically uh, in a patient with impending or, you know, presenting with leukostasis already? I would do them together. I would give hydria, but I would also do leukophoresis at the same time. You know, leukophoresis doesn't, it doesn't, as you, as you all know, it doesn't 
you know, it'll lower the white count by 20 or 30,000, but it's not, but it's not, it's not a permanent fix. I've had too many anecdotal experiences or observed experiences where um, we think the patient is fine with a white count of 128, they get some hydria, and then, you know, a day later they have a stroke. And, and what you're trying to do is to prevent something that you can't predict. So, and, and leukophoresis, it, although it's labor intensive and, um, you know, no one likes showing up in the middle of the night to leukophoresis someone, it, it's a safe procedure. I mean, it's a relatively safe procedure. You put a catheter in and, and you, you throw the white cell through the machine and, 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 uh, and, and the patient, you know, and it's safe. So um, in the absence of randomized data showing that leukophoresis is better than hydroxyurea or doing both is better than, you know, I, I think that the expert opinion, my expert opinion would be just to do the leukophoresis. Do you, do you use any uh, WBC cutoff in the absence of symptoms to do leukophoresis? Yeah, I'd say if the absolute blast count is, is, is 75 or above, I start thinking about it. If it's above 100, then I, I just do it. And, and the other thing is understanding what the slope of that white blood count is. So, you know, if it's doubling every three days, then, then I just jump on it rather than waiting. Um, you know, at, at my center, we the, I'm telling you what I'd like in an ideal world. At my center, we tend to use a lot of hydroxyurea because sometimes, um, you know, we, we can have a little bit of issue uh, with, with getting leukophoresis done um, at weird hours. But um, if I had all the resources in the world and I ran my own hospital, that's what I would do. Sounds good. And at, at any, at what point do you hold off on, you know, transfusion of blood products to, pre- to avoid precipitating a leukostasis? Is there any cutoff that we're, you would hold off on that? So it's interesting. So, you know, I hadn't heard about that until, until uh, probably like five or six years ago. And I don't know if there's any data I mean, there, there might be data. I actually just don't know. I don't know if there's there's good data to show that by transfusing blood products, um, you're going to precipitate a leukostatic episode. So, you know, I, I just use the normal cutoffs, right? So if I've got someone who's got a white count of 150 and they've got a hemoglobin of 7.2, I'm not going to transfuse them. You know, if their hemoglobin is 5.3, then they're getting a transfusion. So um, I just, I, I wouldn't go above what the normal cutoffs are. So a hemoglobin of you know, symptomatic, you know, if you're symptomatic, your hemoglobin is less than seven, I would definitely transfuse you. And and if you're getting leukophoresis at the same time, I think a patient will probably be okay. Yeah, even I never heard about that until, you know, I became attending here and fellows started asking this question that, you know, can we transfuse a patient or do, or do we precipitate uh, leukostasis? But we look at the data and I, I don't think so there's any evidence out there that giving blood products will precipitate leukostasis. It, it comes down what I what I think is the most fascinating thing about academic medicine, which is cultural differences amongst institutions. You know, you have these things that get um, passed on from old doctors to young doctors, but only at particular places. And then you go somewhere else and they think you're crazy when, when you bring these things up. Um, and and it, it's just interesting that just like there's sort of like cultural or regional differences amongst language and, you know, you know, how, how, you know, someone calls something called soda pop in Chicago where I grew up and, and, you know, we call it soda in New York, like in it, just, just like that, there are just differences based on kind of nothing. Um, and really like, you know, if you've got an, uh, a senior physician who says, this is the way we do things. Um, and that's how things are done. So yeah. I, I find that fascinating. Yeah. I remember when I, I first, 
you know what? So I trained, I did my residency at Northwestern in Chicago, as you know, Ashwin. And, uh, and I remember we did, we did, a, you know, we, we talked about leukophoresis all the time. One of my first memories of leukemia was I was the senior resident on the leukemia service. And Marty Tallman at that time was at Northwestern. He was my attending physician. And this patient came in with a white count of like 90,000. And, um, I wanted to look for him, but I had to get the approval of the attending. I remember paging him. He was at a Bulls game. At the, I think it was at the old Chicago stadium with his son. He couldn't hear a word I was saying. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I said, oh, can I look for this patient? He said, oh yeah, sure. So, and, uh, so that was my first foray into, uh, into leukophoresis. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so now jumping, moving on to the next part of the discussion is how do we approach the management of this patient? Um, I know this is a 55-year-old um, with a white count of 128,000. And you, uh, like you said, we're going to do leukophoresis to bring down the white count. Um, so talking about the standard of care, let's assume that this is a patient who can tolerate intensive chemotherapy. Can you talk about the management, assuming that this patient has core binding factor AML, for example? Oh, now and we can talk. Yeah, and we can talk about different uh, and abnormality. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so a, this patient. Mm-hmm. So that's it's an interesting point. So, you know, not all core binding factor AMLs are are the same. We all we all think that they they all so core binding factors AMLs are AMLs that have inversion sixteen, an eight twenty one translocation or a sixteen sixteen translocation. Um, those patients traditionally do very well with intensive induction chemotherapy in the sense that nearly 100% of those patients achieve a complete remission. Now, there has been data that has been, the data would suggest that the addition of the antibody drug conjugate, gemtuzumab azagomycin, to intensive induction chemotherapy and core binding factor I think we AML. should define what is intensive induction chemotherapy. And oh, sorry. Is- I'm, so intensive induction at, at most centers in the United States consists of seven days of continuous infusion of cytarabine with um, three days of donorubicin at a dose, uh, depending <laughs> on the institution who, and what you want to believe, at, of 60 milligrams per meter squared or 90 milligrams per meter squared. I think I think we should it, briefly it, talk about uh, 60 versus 90 versus 45. Uh, as you know, um, uh, 45 versus 90, clearly 90 was beneficial um, in a subset of population. But what are your thoughts about 60 versus 90? I think the totality of the data suggests that 60 is equivalent to 90. If you look, there is a, I believe there's an abstract at ASH this year that's being presented by Christoph Rolig, I think, um, which actually has a randomization where patients are randomized to 60 versus 90. And my memory from briefly perusing the abstract is that there's no difference in uh, in in survival. So now it, it will be interesting to see whether there's a difference in some in any subset of patients, right? So the general feeling I think about for favorable risk acute myeloid leukemia, intensifying the chemotherapy, whether that's by giving higher doses of donorubicin, 60 or 90, I'm not sure which one, or giving gemtuzumab leads to better outcomes. So these are subtypes of leukemia that are very, um, very responsive to, to chemotherapy. 
And therefore, if you can give more chemotherapy without causing sort of, um, you know, fatal myelosuppression, that might benefit the patient. So that's that. That would be the seven plus three. So you have to. So in those patients, I would probably now give ninety milligrams per liter squared of uh, donorubicin until I see the results of that abstract myself. The PowerPoint slides. Sure, sure. Now and you could also then. Now the question is, what happens if you if you want to give gemtuzumab, right? So there's a, you know, there's a randomized trial that was done by um, the French Alpha Group, randomizing patients to receive um, gemtuzumab, azogamycin, anti-CD33 antibody drug conjugate in combination with 7 plus 3 with the donorubicin, I think was 60 milligrams per meter squared. It was given on days 1, 4, and 7, the gemtuzumab. Okay. And that that study showed an event-free survival benefit in the entire patient population, but no no statistically significant benefit in overall survival. But I think the reason for that is because the patients with unfavorable risk and intermediate risk disease kind of sort of they they dilute the effect in the favorable risk patients of whom there aren't that there really aren't that many. So in a perfect world, what I would do in a patient who um, got had poor binding factor acute myeloid leukemia is I would give them seven plus three with gemtuzumab azogamycin. That is not what we do at Memorial Sloan Kettering, by the way, yet. <laughs> but uh, but but that is, I think, what I think the right thing to do is for the patient. Yeah, and why not we do that at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer? It's a good question. I think that. Um, it gets a little bit back into the culture of medicine in that our previous service chief, uh, Dr. Tallman, who, who I respect greatly and, and, uh, and, and really has an unbelievable clinical sense, really was not convinced of the data of, um, of gemtuzumab. In addition, when gemtuzumab was approved, reapproved, um, we had our first patient that we treated with it had a bad outcome from veno-occlusive disease that occurred not at the time of transplant, but actually when he was getting the gemtuzumab during the first month of treatment. And that, that I think, really, unfortunately, put a, um, put a damper on its use at, at Memorial. I, I don't, I, I mean, I, I think, I'm not sure that the, I don't personally think that's the best way to, to practice medicine. I think bad things happen to patients who have leukemia right. and, and we all know that there are risks. So I'm not sure making a global decision based on one patient, or I, I feel strongly making a global decision based on one patient is not the right thing to do. So we're going to readdress this and we're going to review all the data and then we're going to sure. come up with a, um, you know, sort of a, a, a service-wide, institution-wide standard. So for example, if this patient has who has core binding factor leukemia goes into remission after receiving 7 plus 3 plus GO, which is gemtuzumab, um, would you consider uh, uh, continued gemtuzumab during consolidation with HIDAC as well, HIDOS RSC, or <laughs> that is something I know. I know this is all hypothetical. Okay, so so it's important. So it's important to after your induction, um, you, you know, you're gonna you're gonna after induction, maybe one cycle of consolidation, you're gonna make a you're gonna have to make a treatment decision whether you're gonna transplant the patient or not. Right. So right. the generally accepted feeling now is that transplant decisions for core binding factor leukemia should be based maybe on only on the presence of MRD. 
um, after giving two cycles of intensive chemotherapy, whether it's induction consolidation or double induction. Um, and um, so in a patient you're going to transplant, I would not give more gemtuzumab. It, it, that's the rare patient, but I wouldn't give more gemtuzumab because of the risk of venoocclusive disease of the liver. If you're doing it, so like you point out, I think the the part of your question, which maybe didn't get asked, was that in the French study, their consolidation was not high dose RSC, which is what we do in the United States. Their consolidation, I think, was like more cytarabine and donorubicin. Right, right. So if you're going to be a purist, what you should do for consolidation is you should do exactly what they did in that French study. Now, none of us are purists. So we all give cytarabine, high dose cytarabine consolidation. I would continue it during consolidation um, um, with high dose cytarabine. Okay. And in a in a patient like this patient, fifty five year old, is there a particular dose of cytorubine, um you use, or what is it? Do you use age as a cutoff for the dose of uh, cytorubine? Yeah. So you know, we used to use um, most people used to use three grams per meter squared uh, twice a day, days one, three, and five for cytorubine for the cytorubine dose. The current most recent iteration of the European Leukemia Net guidelines suggests, and and other data suggests. The 1.5 grams per meter squared is equivalent to three grams per meter squared. Now, in core binding factor leukemia, that has the strongest data for three grams per meter squared. So in a patient younger than 60, I actually still give three grams per meter squared in a core binding factor patient. In a patient who wasn't core binding factor or a patient, no matter what their um, cytogenetics are, um, above 60, I give 1.5 grams per meter squared. The reason is for patients older than 60, there's a um, um, an increased risk of cerebellar toxicity with doses above 1.5 grams per meter squared. And when you've seen cerebellar, cerebellar toxicity, which I've seen a couple of times, it's it's really quite awful and and dramatic um, um, and and life altering for the patient. So so I am pretty careful about about the doses um, in patients older than 60. Yeah. And talking about toxicities, about uh, um, high DAC, high dose RSC. Uh, and this is something I've seen differences in different institution practices is giving GCSF. What is your practice? Do you give prophylactic GCSF given that high dose RSC can cause significant myelosuppression? We, our practice at Memorial Sloan Kettering is to give um, a dose of new last. So we give our consolidation outpatient. We use a CAD pump and the patients get it at home. So um, our practice is to give a shot of Nulasta on day eight. So chemo starts day one, on day eight, we give a shot of Nulasta. Now, you know, that probably decreases the duration of neutropenia by like 24 to 48 hours. I think one could make a, a reasonable argument that, that it doesn't make a lot of sense to give Nulasta. But, but one of the argument I, I hear from a lot of physicians is, you know, the Nulasta can stimulate the blast. No, is, I don't think so. Right? Yeah, this is not true. The Nulasta. So, um, the the all of the data would suggest that giving GCSF doesn't turn a good blast into a bad blast. That is, if you have a leukemic blast and you give GCSF, the number of leukemic blasts will go up, and then when you withdraw the GCSF, the number of leukemic blasts will go down. But if you have a patient who's in remission and you give them Nulasta or you give them Nupagen, um you know, those are good blasts, right? Those are normal blasts. And those normal blasts might spill out into the blood, but that's fine because they're not leukemia. They, so 
So it can't the 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 use of GCSF or pegylated GCSF can't take a healthy blast and make it leukemic, right? Because if that was the case, then we wouldn't be giving, you know, Nupagen, Nulasta to all these you know women who have breast cancer who are getting dose dense ACT, right? I mean that wouldn't make any sense. So, right, 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 yeah. Um, now talking about the next scenario, which is a if the, let's say which is more likely the possibility that this patient has a FLT3 ITD clone or a TKD clone, how do you approach a patient like that? The same 55-year-old. I know we briefly already talked about it. Yeah, sure. So, so that would be a patient that I would... So so just a caveat to everything. You always want to put your patient on a clinical trial. So you look for a clinical trial first. But let's say you don't have a clinical trial available. That would be a patient that I would put on um, the combination of 7 and 3 and... Mitostorin. Mitostor- 7 and 3 is the is given the way we just discussed. Um, Mitostorin starts at day 8 and it's given days 8 through 21 twice a day. There is a, a second generation FLT3 inhibitor called Quizartinib, which may get approved for the treatment of acute FLT3 mutant acute myeloid leukemia, specifically patients with FLT3 internal tandem duplications. So that may be a different option um, you know, next year if it gets approved. And do you use the variant allele frequency, any particular cutoff? Like I've heard like multiple opinions that, you know, in the clinical trial, they did not include patients who had a variant allele frequency less than 0.1, which is less than 10% in the in the clinical trial. Should we include these patients? Should we treat them with a better? I, I would. I mean, the, the, okay. the issue is that on the clinical trial, the way they measured allelic frequency isn't the way we all, we, uh, that testing is not standardized across institutions. Sure. Um, The other thing is that, and and it it may not, they may not have been included, but I don't think that the addition of mitostorin in those patients is likely to hurt those patients, right? It it, it may, you know, we don't know exactly if it will help, but given that we don't actually, we're not able to measure the allelic ratio the way that they did on the trial, I, I give my discern to every patient uh, who has a FLT3 mutation. Okay. okay. In your practice, do you ever use alternative regimens like Flagida or uh, using even cladribin-based regimens? I know that yeah. right now we'll be seeing a lot of other regimens being combined with venetoclax, like Flagida. For newly diagnosed patients? Yes. You mean for newly diagnosed patients? Newly diagnosed. No. No, I do not do that. I think that, you know, so the, the flag Ida regimen has been popularized by the group at MD Anderson. Um, and um, that's great. Uh, but but I think that when they do things like flag Ida venetoclax, it's because their their backbone regimen is flag Ida. So that's why they're adding venetoclax onto it. I would say that I've never seen any convincing data that... Um, that seven and three is, and, and you know, in other countries they use, it's, it's not just MD Anderson, right? In other countries, they do all sorts of other things, right? They use like ham and hydrocerosine metazantrone and, right, and right. Uh, they do double induction. And if you go to Asia, they do all sorts of other things. And, and, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is that, that all these regimens are probably about, are probably the same. I, I don't, I don't really think there's any big difference. Sure. I'm sure the people from these other places would disagree with me, but, 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 but I think they're wrong. <laughs> I think I think we do not have any randomized uh, clinical trials comparing uh, any of these regimens with our current standard, which is seven plus three, 
uh, where we use only one cycle. I think right now some data being presented at ASH comparing single induction versus double induction. Uh, I think yeah, it's no, that no same trial we just talked about, the 60 versus 90. There's also a single versus double induction randomization. It's all the same. Right. The, the problem is that it becomes the cultural thing, right? So if you're wedded to a certain idea, right, you can always find some hole in the trial that will say, well, that patient population wasn't like my patient. I mean, I do this also. I'm not, right. I'm not right. casting aspersions on others. It wasn't like my patient population. So I still really think that, you know, double induction is the is the thing that's going to work. But you know, I think people have to be, and you know, you get sort of, you know, you get this emotional investment in in some regimen. But I think it's really important to take a step back and just like, you know, not be too emotionally invested, and, and you know, make a switch if you need to make a switch. I mean, there was a randomized trial that showed that flagida led to increased overall survival compared to seven and three, like a good randomized phase three trial. I'd switch in a second. I think it's the right thing to do. And uh, talking about now switching gears, talking about uh, CNS prophylaxis, which patient populations do you consider CNS prophylaxis now while they're getting their induction and consolidation? Um, so I typically will give CNS prophylaxis in patients who have a very elevated white count at diagnosis. So you're going to ask me, what is that white count? And the answer is over 50, over 100, something like that. Those patients tend to have a monocytic leukemia. So I also give CNS prophylaxis in those patients with a monocytic leukemia. I usually do it, unless someone has signs or symptoms of CNS disease, I usually do it at the end of induction once they recover their counts. There's a theoretical possibility that with circulating blasts, if someone does not have um, CNS disease, you're going to introduce blasts into their CNS. Again, totally you know, there's no data that shows that that actually happens, but, you know, people have this idea, so we don't do it. And and you have to remember the CNS prophylaxis is pretty safe, right? I mean, like, it, it's pretty rare that someone gets like an arachnoid, arachnoiditis, or I don't think I've ever seen that. So right. I think that the downside of doing an LP and giving a little score to chemotherapy, once someone has recovered their counts, is is very, very low. And, and you know, there's a potential upside, so... I think finally, um, while we're getting induction, talking about induction chemotherapy, uh, do you always uh, do a day 14 bone marrow biopsy? I know there's a lot of you know, institution-wide differences even in day 14 bone marrow biopsy as well. AML is such a complex disease that there's so many uh, nuances to it. So do you, in your practice, always do a day 14 bone marrow biopsy? If yes, then why? Why do we do it? It's a good question. I believe the NCCN still mm -hmm. talks about doing, I don't remember what the new, the NCCN guidelines get updated pretty frequently. So I don't remember, even though I'm on the panel, what, if they're still recommending doing a day 14 bone marrow biopsy. I think they, they do, they still do. They still do. I do a day 14 bone marrow biopsy, but in reality, I don't really understand why I do it. I mean, I, I think that I'm, I'm not entirely sure what it offers. So, okay. so I think the question is, so it does offer some things, right? So for example, you do a day 14 marrow, you see the patient still has disease, right? Um, you can then reinduce right away. Okay, so that makes me feel good. I've reinduced right away and maybe I've saved the patient some time in the hospital. But it's not at all, but that, I'm not sure that's the measurement we should be going by. We should be measuring, does it somehow improve the patient's outcome? Does the patient live longer if I give them chemotherapy right away? And I'm, I don't, I'm not sure that's true at all. So, 
And, and there is data that suggests the day 14 bone marrow biopsies are not particularly, you know, sensitive or specific for anything. Yeah. So it would be nice to move away from day 14 bone marrow biopsies, to be honest with you. I think that, you know, it's not clear to me they, but, but you do need some time point because sometimes what happens is that, you know, if you don't do, I've seen, I have colleagues who don't do a day 14 and then it's day 30 and the patient hasn't recovered their counts. They're like, well, let's wait till day 36 and see if the patient recovers their counts. And then it's day 36. Well, it's the weekend. So let's wait till day 39. <laughs> and, you know, and at some point you got to like, you got to, you got to make a decision, but yeah. yeah. Um, I think the biggest challenge I, I see uh, in doing day 14 is, you know, if you see a blast percentage between 5 to 10%, uh, should we wait till day 21 and that blast might be cleared or it's an early relapse? I think that I think making that decision time point is very challenging at day 14. Um, uh, and sometimes, you know, we make a decision call that, okay, let's repeat the bone marrow biopsy on day 21 and see if it is less than 5% or not. Uh, but I think, like you said, I think it's always challenging uh, to make any decision calls based on day 14. And maybe you could just wait till day 28 instead of subjecting yeah, the poor yeah. patient to a bone marrow biopsy every week, you know? Absolutely. Like maybe you could maybe get the same information without without poking holes in the patient's, you know, posteriorly at crest, right? Right, so. right, right. I mean, it's not the most pleasant procedure, right? Patients don't like bone yeah, marrow yeah, biopsies. Yeah. So. Patients hate it. <laughs> All right, so we'll now jump uh, into secondary AML. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Stein, can you tell us about you know why it's important to distinguish between de novo AML and secondary AML, and then we can you know go briefly into the clinical trial of Vixios or CPX three five one. But first of all, you know why why it's important to distinguish between these two entities. So it's important because we now have a treatment that is specific for patients with secondary AML. So if we didn't have this treatment, I'm not sure it would be that important to to figure it out. But now we have a treatment that for reasons that are compl uh, completely unknown or, or somewhat unknown is that we have a liposomal formulation of donorubicin and cytarabine that showed a survival benefit in a randomized phase three trial when this drug was compared against standard seven plus three for patients with secondary AML. And given that those, and, and specifically those patients do particularly well if they get into remission, have an allogeneic stem cell transplant compared to seven plus three. And I think that is why it's important to know if they have secondary AML. Now, this becomes extremely complex, and we don't have time to talk about it now, because the trial was done at a time where secondary AML was defined in a specific way. But the new WHO and ICC got... So now there are two different competing groups that, um, that are defining what AML is. And what secondary AML is, is being defined differently than what was done in that clinical trial. So the question comes up, you know, now we can call something AML sometimes if they, the patient has 11% blast. So if that is a patient who has AML that came from MDS, but has 11% blast, even though they weren't included in that original trial, should we be giving them CPX351? I have no idea. I mean... I don't think CPX351, again, is going to be worse than 7 plus 3, but it's certainly more expensive than 7 plus 3, right? And and as I said earlier in the conversation, you know, we think that doesn't make a difference, but it actually does, right? Because all of our insurance rates go up if we're using very expensive medications um, for, for patients that may not benefit them. But but the so the overall answer is that it's important to know if the patient has secondary AML because it would change what your therapeutic strategy is. 
if you thought they were going to be someone who was someone who should get a intensive induction like approach so talking about you know maintenance i know this is something uh, that came uh, about recently with the quasar aml 001 trial now what if this patient who's you know who got intensive induction chemotherapy and got couple of cycles of consolidation but he does not want any more chemotherapy and is refusing transplant as well would you consider a patient like this who is per eln classification let's say intermediate or poor risk would you consider maintenance therapy is it your practice are you doing maintenance therapy i would absolutely give this patient maintenance therapy with oral azacitidine because there's a randomized placebo controlled trial called the quasar study which shows a survival benefit of, i think it's a 10 month median overall survival benefit in those patients so 100% i would give them maintenance the problem as you know is that those patients don't exist right so <laughs> so the you know if you look at the patients who were included in the quasar trial it was what you just said ashwin it was 55 and older with intermediate or unfavorable risk cytogenetics who did not go on and get an allogeneic stem cell transplant those patients don't almost don't i mean i really think they they really don't exist anymore because we send almost everyone who's received intensive induction chemotherapy with intermediate unfavorable risk disease off to a transplant when the trial was designed it was at a time where we didn't have these alternative donor sources like cord blood well we had cord blood but haplos were not something that was done routinely and now everyone has a donor now we're transplanting people who are 78 years old um so i can tell you that i have prescribed oral azacitidine since its approval i've prescribed it twice in my life the first time the patient relapsed a month later the second time the pa- it was intolerable the patient um the patient yeah, had severe nausea and and was like when is this going to end and i said well you know the standard is that it never ends and they said i'm never doing that. i'm not doing that and that was that <laughs> and the patient hasn't relapsed yet so so i would say that i think the uptake you know obviously i don't know the marketing statistics but I, my guess is that is that some is the uh, bms who makes anureg this is not a huge money maker for them right right i think one of the criticism about this clinical trial was the way it was designed as well like a lot of people when it initially came out in new england journal of medicine um there was a lot of criticism about substandard control arm because you know the way they specified uh, they only got very limited consolidation chemotherapy and then they had only 4 months of before they can get any treatment and also the criteria for ineligibility for allo transplant was not pre specified and lot of patients eventually went up getting transplant so that probably tilted the overall survival benefit towards the um, the maintenance arm and I'm, i'm curious to know your thoughts on that no i i agree with what you said i think that, that the the other thing that has never been clear to me is that patients see see the data gets gets a little um It, it it's a little squirrely in that my memory and you can correct me if i'm wrong is that patients who were mrd negative by flow didn't really have a benefit of oral um oral azacitidine that is correct and, and you know so what you're then doing is you're subjecting all sorts of patients to getting this oral therapy which which has side effects um when when maybe many of them don't 
don't need it. I mean, the, the other way to think about it is that we now have better therapies. We now potentially have better therapies if we detect MRD. So maybe the right trial would have been, and it didn't, maybe the right trial to do now would be, you know, instead of giving everyone oral azacitidine, maybe what you do is you do close monitoring for MRD. And if MRD pops up, that patient, you know, then gets treated with like azaven in an effort for to eliminate their MRD and then go to transplant or something like that. I don't know. It's just that it, 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 it was, the trial was designed in a way, as you said, that is a little bit out of sync with how we do things in 2022, almost 2023. But I mean, but that's the nature of trials that go on for 10 years, you know, like the world changes. So that's why part of the reason it's important to get trials done as quickly as you possibly can. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Stein, uh, for your time. Uh, we look forward to having you again on our podcast to discuss about older adults with AML as well as relapsed refractory AML with novel therapies. Okay. I look forward to it. I look forward to seeing all of you at the ASH meeting in New Orleans. Fantastic. Thank you so okay, much, bye Dr. Bye. Stein. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.